and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. We're live today from New York City with Dr. Sarah Persley, who is Assistant Professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at NYU, and the author of a forthcoming and very exciting book about the history of Iraq in the 20th century, issues of gender, development, time, and the family. So Sarah, we're so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, and thank you for having me. The topic of our conversation today will be crisis and development in 20th century Iraq. This episode will deal not only with the history of Iraq in the 20th century, but with bigger and more far-reaching questions about time, gender, development, and state formation. So I thought we could start out by putting some of the the big concepts on the table. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the concepts that's key to your work is this idea of development. So what are we talking about when we talk about development? Yeah, that's an excellent question, um, because partly what we're talking about is many different things. Um, And especially in the interwar period, partly what I'm looking at is the genealogy of post-war development, how that goes back into the interwar period um, through multiple different strands, which maybe I'll get to later. But I'll say a little bit about the post-war concept of development. And this Um, is post-World War II. Post-World War II, right. This is a a huge moment in the history of development. I mean, 1945, you know, at the end of World War II, this is the moment in which the countries and people of the globe are divided into two categories, developed and developing. I mean, this is really the moment when that happens. After that, if you're a country, you are one or the other of those things. You're either developed or developing. Um, And this you know, of course, has earlier roots in in ideas about backwards and modern countries, um, but also there are really important uh, differences in this post-war concept. Um, So a lot of the scholarship has focused on this post-war concept of development, which I also do. But again, I'm also interested in kind of the antecedents of that um, in the interwar period. Maybe I'll just say a few things about the post-war concept of development, because this is central to the questions um, that come up throughout the book. One is the way in which the term development has come to be uh, really ambiguous. If you say the economic development of Iraq after 1945, you actually don't know. There's no way of knowing whether you're talking about Iraq as the subject developing or whether it's the object of development. Yeah, it's a kind of polysemic term. It totally is, yeah. And I think that ambiguity is very productive in lots of ways for the history of development. Um, and then a, a related uh related feature of this post-war concept is how these very different ideas of development, specifically the development of land, you know, which is just the development of real estate, really, how we think about it today, has gotten completely intermingled with biological and psychological ideas about the development of humans um, and, you know, national racial ideas about the development of peoples. So now the development of land, you might not only be developing land, but there's also a land that's developing, which is an interesting semantic shift. And then the people, people are not just developing, but also you can develop the people. So I'm really interested in how those very different linguistic concepts come together in the single post-war concept of development. Right. And so this is a concept that not only works on many different scales, right? It works about people, about land, about countries, about whole parts of the world. Yes. But it also has this weird sort of two-sided nature where it's a thing you can do to something, you can develop it, but it's also a thing that can be done, right? You can be developed. Exactly. Um, So that's kind of an interesting question. So one of the things that your work... I think does is to suggest that the history of the interwar period right before World War II and also the history of Iraq in particular can kind of tell us something interesting and new about the question of development. So maybe you could just say a little bit more about what is development in Iraq in the interwar period. It's not definitely not a singular um, concept in the interwar period which has been one cause of some confusion around this history. 
I'm looking especially at these three strands of development I just mentioned, actually, this uh, concept of economic development, um, which in interwar period really means the exploitation of land and other resources. And it's a colonial concept. It means a colonial power exploiting land and other resources. You know, that's what people mean when they talk about the colonial sense of development. Um, and that really begins in the mid-19th century. That concept is extremely important in Iraq um, simply because of Iraq's vast resources, oil and agricultural resources. So the British are always talking about economic development in Iraq, and that's what they mean is creating the infrastructure for exploiting um, or at least controlling uh, the exploitation of Iraq's oil, exactly, um, and agriculture also. So that's one strand in the history of development. And then there's also this, these national and psychological um, strands in development, which are also really important in Iraq, where Iraq becomes this productive location for the intermingling of these concepts simply because of its uh, place in the League of Nations mandate system. It's in the League of Nations mandate system established after World War I that creates Iraq as a British mandate state where this idea of the stages of development of peoples um, actually comes into international law and international institutions. And Iraq is one of a few countries that is designated as this intermediate stage of development, which people immediately start calling an adolescent stage of development. And then Iraq is the first of those states to become independent in 1932, the first mandate state to become um, independent. So Iraq, you know, it's not that Iraq is unique, you know, these are global uh, phenomenon, but I think Iraq is a really productive location for looking at how these different concepts of development start to merge. Yeah, and it picks up on what you were saying earlier, that Iraq is both a place to be developed by the British and also a place that is itself developing on some timeline by which it can be marked as adolescent or in the middle stage, which maybe we'll talk a little bit more about later. So one of the ways you frame this history of these multiple meanings of development in Iraq in the interwar period is through this idea of, of crisis and these moments of crisis that bring up um, sort of questions or problems in the relationship between the state, society, and these ideas about time or about you know economic development or the development of peoples. So I thought we could just turn to some of those those crises to pick out what are some of the complex dynamics um, that are at play in shaping this concept and the way it works out on the ground in interwar Iraq. So in interwar Iraq, as in other parts of the Middle East and indeed the world, um, the question of how to educate children and particularly girls becomes this huge issue in the interwar period. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about what was at stake in that debate. First of all, it's interesting the ways in which Iraq was in some ways different from many other places on this question um, for a number of reasons. You know, one thing I look at is how in the 1920s, um, in the official public school system, girls and boys actually had the same education, the same curriculum. They followed the same curriculum and the same course of schooling. That was really unusual in the world in this time period. You know, in most places, girls are required to study home economics and the official public school curriculum. And in fact, they were in Ottoman schools in the late 19th century. So it's almost this reversal of what we could call a sort of modernization process that the Ottomans were implementing in terms of gender and family reform that actually shifts in the 1920s for a number of reasons. I mean, one is that the British weren't interested in um, in family reform, really, or in educating girls, or in educating anyone, for that matter. The British were really interested in sort of producing, uh, producing stasis, really. I mean, I can say more about that later, but they were not interested in um, educational reforms in the way they were, say, in Egypt. And then on the Iraqi side, um, the nationalists who got control of the school system in the 1920s, for various reasons really having to do with who the individuals were, they implemented a uniform school system for everybody, including uh, girls. Meaning um, boys and girls followed basically the same curriculum. Exactly, exactly. So it's partly just this particularity of Iraq. 
which for me is useful. You know, we could just say, well, then Iraq is just this delayed, you know, sort of repetition of an earlier model. We already know what we're seeing. We saw it in Egypt. We saw it, you know, in different places. I think this actually makes Iraq a productive place to look at changes in ideas about these ideas about gender and family reform in the 1930s and 40s as we're approaching World War II, um, related to the Great Depression, related to the rise of the U.S. as a power. Now we have these Americans running around Iraq making suggestions on these kinds of reforms um, related to, um, you know, sort of the emerging age of development, um, which people, you know, as I said, place after World War II, but, but you're seeing some shifts around that time. And that really influences how education for girls expands and changes in the 1930s. So we have this really kind of multivocal debate where you have the British who want certain set of things, including stability, and aren't that interested in education. You have a group of Iraqi nationalists who wants to put in place a uniform curriculum, so same stuff for boys and girls. And then I'm sure you have all kinds of other um, local voices as well as Americans running around with you know ideas about what good education looks like and how it should be done. So y- you brought up this really interesting point that in the 1920s in Iraq, it was possible that a girl, or it was likely, that a girl going to school would study basically the same thing as boys. But by the 1950s, that was not the case. Um, I think you mentioned in the in the book that's 20% of a girl's time in school would be spent on you know gender specific topics. Right. What happened there? Why is that the case? Right. Well, it really the big shift starts in 1932, um, and uh, Iraqis were already starting something in 1932. They created the first home economic school for girls um, for secondary school girls in 1932. But also in 1932, this uh, American Educational Commission arrives in Iraq called the Monroe Commission, which is very well known in the historiography in Iraq. Um, They wrote a famous report called the Monroe Report that criticizes the Iraqi education system for this uniform curriculum that had been implemented. And they're especially concerned with two forms of difference in Iraq that they think this curriculum is not respecting or producing. One is the male-female difference, and the other is the urban-rural difference. So basically, they argue that Rural boys, obviously the vast majority of um, Iraqis in this time period are rural, should only be getting or should be almost entirely um, getting education in agricultural skills, you know, manual, manual skills. And girls should be getting education in home economics, which, you know, in the U.S. was a required field of study for all girls in American public schools. Um, This actually sets off this two decade long process by which the Iraqi education system is differentiated by sex. Um, So that's really what I'm looking at there. But it is sparked, you know, it's sparked by Iraqis first, and then they invite this American commission to come. And then it really is following this American model of home economics um, for girls. So I just want to highlight for for our listeners and, you know, for regular listeners of the podcast, this might not be a surprise, but that in fact, you have Iraqi nationalists who are saying girls and boys should have the same education. And it's actually an American commission that comes in in the 30s that has a very different idea. So this is sort of counter to some of the things we might normally think about how the organization of gender and sex has happened in the modern Middle East. Right, exactly. Yeah. And maybe I'll just say one more one more example of that. In the 50s, 1952, you have new Americans arriving representing the Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO of the United Nations. And there's this very interesting report written by this American home economics um, specialist. Her name was Ava Milam. And she writes this report in 1952, uh, recommending, again, she thinks that girls are not, they're getting a different education now, home economics, but not enough. So they need to be required to take more courses in home economics, just like girls in American schools were doing. 
She then uh, later writes these uh, memoirs where she claims that what she was doing in Iraq was expanding educational opportunities for Iraqi women. Uh, Her memoirs were written in 1969, the exact opposite of what she was really doing in 1952. What changed, what changed between 1952 when she writes this report recommending girls study home economics more and academic subjects less, which was her recommendation in 1952, and then 1969 where she suggests that she was doing the opposite in Iraq in 1952. What has changed is the American feminist movement has launched an attack on home economics requirements, um, sex-based home economics requirements in public schools, um, which then, in response to the American feminist movement, second-wave feminist movement, those get banned by law in 1972 with the passage of Title IX. Um, After that, American schools can no longer have requirements based on sex. So basically what has changed is the American definition of what progress and modernity are, right? So it's still the case that women's status is used to index modernity or to sort of measure how modern a country is. And it's still the case that that somehow proves that the U.S. is ahead of Iraq, you know, in progress and modernization. But what defines a woman's status in relation to modernity, what is considered a modern woman's status, has been completely reversed, right? So now it's not requiring women to take home economics. Now it is having um, equality in education. So I think these two documents she wrote are just a really interesting example of how that kind of thinking works and the way it affects the way we write history. Because we imagine, you know, sort of unconsciously that the West is in this permanent state of modernity. We forget, you know, everyone knows actually the 1950s is the the golden age of domesticity in the U.S., right? Um, But we forget that. Um, So when people talk about modernization in the Middle East, we think we're talking about equality between men and women, for example. And a linear progression. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. The same thing actually is uh, just mentioned is true of race because, you know, when this American commission arrives in 1932 um, and starts recommending that Iraqi boys, most Iraqi boys should only study agricultural skills, they are drawing these ideas from their work in segregated schooling projects for black youth in the American South, the Hampton Tuskegee Institutes. They're coming directly, actually, some of them from those institutes. And yet this this report and these recommendations get written about in Iraqi history as if these Americans are coming to spread democracy and equality and equal opportunity. So again, it's this forgetting, even though everyone knows that 1930s U.S. is a highly racially segregated society with Jim Crow laws and it's before the civil rights movement. But somehow people think Americans coming to Iraq in the 1930s are going to be promoting democracy. So it's this problem we have often in writing history where we forget that the West, too, the U.S. and European countries are also moving through um, historical time. And we need to look at what's happening, I think. This is why in the book I go back and forth between the Western and Iraqi context of development, because you have to keep in mind that both places are changing in the same historical moments. And that we have to unpick development as a linear process towards a modernity that we always already knew what it looked like in order to see these moments where things that are unexpected in that linear story happen. Um, both in Iraq as in the United States. And also that, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that the question of development comes out of older discourses about civilizations being ahead or behind, and that we really can't take that kind of temporality at face value. Because indeed, as you're saying, Iraq and the United States occupied, in a sense, the same time (laughs) in the 1930s, and that there were lots of contemporary um, ties between the two that we shouldn't overlook. Right, right. So the story of the crisis or the historical playing out of education in general, and particularly girls' education in Iraq, brings to light this question that you take up in, in great length in the book, which is this kind of strange way in which children and women and education come to be at the heart of questions about development in all their many meanings. You know, and this is also obviously a phenomenon that is extends beyond Iraq. 
in a sense. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about why you think this is. Um, I mean, there are many reasons and there are many different ways of approaching, um, you know, this question. Maybe I'll just say a few things about how I think maybe I'm doing it differently from some um, some other scholars, especially working on the Middle East. You know, one is, first of all, I take very seriously the, the claims of modernization uh, reformers, you know, in Iraq um, and the foreign ones coming to Iraq, um, that you know, I don't think this was just a metaphorical um, question where the family or children or women or the modernization of all of those things was um, kind of standing for some desire for nationalist sovereignty. Um, and I don't mean to actually simplify scholarship that does that because it's very important to look at sort of the metaphorical aspects of it. But I think, and especially, you know, as you're going into the 1930s and 1940s and these discourses start targeting uh, lower class women, both rural and urban um, lower class women and families, um, they are very serious that the, the reason for this, uh, one reason for this is that women need to be raising certain kinds of children, right? Um, and that women are sort of what link uh, children who then become youth, who then become adults to kind of local um, local uh, ideas about time, local habits, local practices, local affiliations. And in order to sort of break those ties, which which are seen to sort of get in the way of development in various ways, the solution of many reformers is to change the women, right? Go after the women, then we can then we can change the children. So I take that very seriously. I don't think it's just a, I don't think it's just a way to keep women in the home, right? I don't think we can just look at it as a women's rights issue, um, and I don't think it's um, also just a nationalist or or um, idea about raising patriots, right? It's also about creating um, different classes of people, creating workers and peasants as well as middle class uh, future technocrats. Um, what they need to know for economic development. So I think that's really important. Um, I've often wondered if there's something um, about the kind of multiple levels that children and the raising of children works on that kind of strengthens the the power of the metaphor, right? So it works on this metaphorical level in that civilizations or countries are like children, mm -hmm. and that has all kinds of important um, results, including justifying the mandate system in general. Right. Uh, but then they actually, I mean, what you're saying is that these, you know, these reformers actually really wanted to change the lives of actual children. I mean, it wasn't just a metaphor, you know, yeah. they wanted to get into the home and fix or change the way, you know, the sort of daily practices of what it meant to raise a child. Right. So I always wonder if the fact that it works on those two levels gives this metaphor some kind of, or this concept, some kind of extra power. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Um, and I, I do look at sort of both, and even the both, you know, gets complicated. There's more than two things going on. But um, yeah, no, I do think that's part of sort of the, the kind of extraordinary centrality and productivity of these ideas for ideas about modernization pretty much everywhere. You know, because I am also interested in, uh, maybe metaphorical is not quite the right word, but sort of the discursive aspects of, of um, these reforms, and especially of um, childhood and children, right? And one of the things I um, look at, which I was going to say is a sort of second way maybe my approach to this, uh, to your original question differs from some of the current scholarship, is I'm interested in how these have kind of depoliticizing effects, these um, projects of gender and family reform. Um, and one thing I do is I draw on the theorist Lee Edelman's idea about what he calls reproductive futurism. Um, and, and in Lee Edelman's theory of reproductive futurism, which really he's writing about the U.S. mainly, um, late 20th century U.S., is that the figure of the child right, comes to stand for um, the nation's future. Actually, he doesn't use the word nation's future, but that's how I'm using his concept, which turns out to be this constantly receding future, right? But the argument um, arguments are made in the name of the child as the nation's future that are actually used to 
paradoxically, you know, it seems to be about change. It seems to be about yearning for change and promoting change, but paradoxically work to sort of freeze the political present um, in various ways. Um, but so the, you know, I am sort of using this concept of reproductive futurism and the child as standing for the nation's future um, in this very different context, this decolonizing context, this uh, context where development and modernization theory are becoming very important. Um, but to look at ways in which arguments um, made in the name of the child's future and the nation's future are often used to kind of slow down political change, right? I mean, the most common example is, you know, we can't have democracy until we have development. And this is made in the name of the child, right? See how poor all these children are, see how hungry they are. Um, it's a waste of time to think about politics um, before we have uh, development. So this, and so what's different about Iraq and other countries that come to be called developing countries in this period is, you know, on one hand, this is a global discourse about the child's future um, and reproductive futurism as this depoliticizing discourse. Um, but that gets merged with this um, other concept of the developing country, right? So in some ways, sort of the moral, um, the moral imperative that goes along with it actually gets strengthened um, uh, through the merging of these two different concepts. So we'll take a quick music break now and come back in a few minutes with Sarah Persley for more on the history of crisis and development in 20th century Iraq. So welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson here today in New York with Sarah Persley talking about her fascinating work on time, gender, and temporality uh, in 20th century Iraq. So one of the things that your work does that's really interesting is that it brings a lot of stories that don't usually come into the same conversation uh, into the same frame. And so we've talked a little bit about this question of girls' education and, and education more generally in, in interwar Iraq. But you also um, excavate a lot of new material about the questions about agricultural reform um, in Iraq in the 1940s. So I'm wondering, um, in particular, you talk about this kind of set of projects that went on at a place called Dujela that were all about creating family farms in the in early 1940s, 50s. 50s. So I'm wondering if you just tell us a little bit more about what was going on there and how this is a kind of example of development uh, in practice. Right. Actually, you're right. It starts in 1945. Um, the project I looked at um, is founded in uh, 1952. So the, yeah, the Dujela Land Settlement Project um, is established by the Dujela Law, Land Settlement Law um, of 1945 um, in Iraq. And I, you know, basically it's a, it's a land settlement project that was enabled by the new dams and irrigation systems that had been built um, in the late 30s, early 40s in Iraq. Um, and it was an attempt to not resolve by any means, but address some of the consequences of the agrarian crisis that was driving, you know, thousands of rural people um, into the cities and contributing to the development of large slums in the cities, which uh, was a huge fear, in, especially um, sort of at the start of the Cold War um, and the popularity of the Iraqi uh, Communist Party. So that's part of the context for it. And basically the idea was to create small family farms, what were called family farms, um, and resettle some of the landless poor um, on these farms to keep them from migrating to the cities or actually to sometimes to resettle them from the cities. I became interested in this because I was looking at concepts of family and the way in which um, attempts to reform the family often seem to relate to paradoxes of time, of modern time um, in general. So, so in this case, I was interested in this project 
because of the ways in the sort of contradictory ways in which it seemed to relate to ideas about the future. So basically what happened, I'll just say what happened, is they uh, distributed land to these, um, to these, uh, to the land, to some of the landless poor, who then came to live um, on what were called these family farms. There were no villages at Dujela. They were deliberately banned. Um, so the farms were um, created in these isolated, it was called the Four Corners Settlement Plan. So in the four corners of four different fields together, they would build three houses, four houses rather, um, and settle people there. And then each group of four was one kilometer from the next group of four. This was explicitly to sort of reduce the political capacities um, of the people who were being resettled. It was ostensibly, it was claimed to be based on this U.S. agrarian reform model, um, actually from the 19th century, the U.S. Homestead Act. Uh, this was the sort of uh, historical precursor that, that often got um, invoked as the basis for this. In this uh, environment, in the Iraqi environment, it was actually a disaster. It was an ecological disaster, and it ended up being a social disaster, um, too. The ecological disaster was because they built these small family farms, smallish family farms, which um, any small farm uh, must rely on intensive methods of agriculture. They didn't build the infrastructure to sustain intensive methods of agriculture. In particular, they didn't build a drainage system um, to drain the newly irrigated um, lands, which meant that the land turned to salt uh, within two decades. So it was just salinization of the land, which was um, one thing I was interested in is how this was not, um, you know, oops, we didn't think of that. Everybody knew this was going to happen. You know, it was predicted from the beginning. If we don't build a drainage system, the land will turn to salt within 20 years. And they built these uh, farms anyways. They didn't do the drainage system. And within 20 years, the land had turned to salt and the settlers um, had to leave. So that's one thing going on. Um, another thing is um, during these 20 years that people are settled on this land, um, international agencies start arriving um, in Iraq. And at this particular settlement, the Dujela Project, um, UNESCO got involved. So UNESCO was a new you know, organization of the UN. Um, 1952, this UNESCO team arrives on the Dujela settlement and starts implementing this home economics program for the rural women, the resettled women. So basically the idea was to reshape the lives of these rural women you know, in the name of some universal developed future, right? We need to create these sort of modern homes. They need to learn nutrition. They need to learn household gar gardening. They need to raise their children properly. You know, that all of that discourse about modernizing the family. So I was really interested in this. This was, you know, this was a really interesting phenomenon to me that these reforms are being made in the family and in intimate lives of families in the name of this universal, like distant future at the same time that the land was deteriorating in this completely known way. So there was no local future, you know, on this settlement for these people. So I wanted to think about this paradox and these sort of developmental ideas um, of the future. Another thing that happened, I'll just mention, because also related to the family um, farm aspect of this, was that they couldn't get clean water to the settlers because the, ha the houses were so far away from each other. They couldn't pipe clean water to them. It was too expensive. And the settlers couldn't even build a well like they would have had back in their old villages for drinking water. So they were using the same water for drinking, irrigation, and sewage, which was a health disaster. You know, they were just getting diseases. The diseases would be treated maybe. Then they would go back and drink the water again and get sick again. So it was this kind of unmitigated social ecological disaster. The development workers, you know, some of them had to be sent home because they were going crazy trying to deal with this uh, this problem. There was depression and um, kind of mental health problems among the development workers, you know, so it was sort of this, I mean, it sounds like a living hell, honestly, for everybody, but especially for the settlers. Um, so, you know, I was really interested in thinking about how these ideas about family reform intersected in this case with development and environmental history. I mean, literally, the land has changed because of the attachment to this family uh, farm model. Um, and um, the settlers' lives are changed, and eventually they have to abandon um, their own farms. So this, to me, you know, it's 
an incredibly kind of direct example of the what the whole book is about, which is how these ideas about family reform are simultaneously framed in this modernizing discourse about moving towards a future at the same time that they are in practice kind of uh, producing immobility, fixity, uh, preventing change, political change in this case from happening, and uh, um, especially in this uh, this Cold War um, context. So, so obviously the the Dujela project did not work on so many levels, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, did it work as a depoliticizing mechanism? I right. Mean, That's a good question. Um, no, I mean you know they're trying to prevent a revolution, which happens in right. 1958. <laughs> so no, it, it doesn't work on that front either. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine how it could, uh, given that it wasn't going to last very long. And, and of course, there's only a small amount of land anyways. I mean, the vast majority of landless poor are still landless poor. So um, one of the interesting things that this example brings out is the capacity of development as kind of almost an ideology to um, sustain these like projects of that are failures. Yeah. I mean, and everybody knows it, right? I mean, they knew it was going to happen. And then the development workers witness it. I mean, they themselves become ill from the terrible conditions. So everybody can see what's going on. And yet, they're still holding up this vision of a modernized future, um, even though everything in the present is falling apart. Right, right. You know, I mean, that's one thing, um, you know, critics of development have pointed out, um, uh, not just me, but the way in which development thrives on failure, right? Because you fail. And that just sparks, you know, the need for more development projects right. um, to intervene more in people's lives. And how do we make this better? How do we not fail next time? Um, so, you know, after the uh, Iraqi Revolution of 58, which I don't really look at the agrarian reform um, projects that much in this book, I'm going to uh, maybe work on it for another book, kind of a broader agrarian reform um, history of Iraq in relation to these, uh, in relation to family um, history also. But what happens after the revolution is, you know, they they basically implement a, a much larger scale version of this Jujela project. Um, you know, it's different. It's not exactly the same and it's not as disastrous. Um, but it is sort of based on a similar idea of, um, giving people land in exchange for which um, you expect them to allow interventions into their intimate um, lives, right? And that is how the state is kind of asserting control over people's lives. And again, trying to depoliticize the rural population. I mean, that is just as true after um, the revolution. So it's a it's a fascinating reflection, right? That like, even though these development projects based around family farms at Dujela fail in all of these like extremely scandalous ways. Um, after the revolution in Iraq in 1958, many of the same assumptions about development, about time, and also about gender and the family kind of continue, right? And that kind of changes the way we think about revolution, right? Which we think of as this like major rupture in historical time. One of the things that you're showing us is that actually a lot of the kind of deeper assumptions about the way that the world works remained in place. So I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about what is the legacy of ideas of development in the interwar period for um, the revolutionary period after 1958, after um, the leftist Abdul Qasim overthrows the Hashemite monarchy in Iraq? Right. I mean, there are a lot of continuities. There are, you know, there are a lot of changes, too. Um, but but you're absolutely right in terms of um, sort of how gender and family are working in relation to development. Um, there are a lot of continuities. And I think that's just because of how productive they were, how productive these discourses were for certain projects. And again, especially um, these projects of, of what I'm calling depoliticization. I mean, after the revolution, 
um, you know, it's a it's a military coup technically, and um, but it's supported by so you know massive uh, numbers of Iraqis that the U.S. and Britain couldn't even intervene. I mean, I've been through the U.S. State Department records, and basically the state the the embassy in Baghdad is saying to the State Department, "Good luck finding anyone who's going to be against this thing." You know, um, so so it has massive support from Iraqis, but also, and this is a really understudied aspect of the revolution. There is, uh, you know, large mobilizations in the in the countryside. I mean, rural mobilizations of people burning down, you know, landlords landlords uh, homes and 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 taking over land themselves. And so there is felt among uh, the state officials and Qasim, um, including Qasim, that um, there is a need to demobilize the population. So, you know, I'm not saying that these gender and family projects are kind of the only uh, the only kind of projects working towards this end, but I do think that they are very productive um, in this way. Um, so they they were one way to bring together, at least initially, until it kind of falls apart, to bring together um, the different political parties that supported the revolution. Um, so the part the four parties that came together in the United National Front in 1957 were the Communist Party, which was the most popular party in Iraq, the Ba'ath, uh, which was small at that time, but it's um, increasing in popularity, um, the Independence Party, which was a a more conservative um, Arab Nationalist Party and the National Democratic Party, which were like you know the liberal um, democratic capitalists. Those four parties, you know, knew about the coup in advance and they supported it. Um, you know, one thing I think is interesting again to think about these ideas of the future and time is that each of these parties had a particular idea for what they wanted out of the revolution. None of which came true at any point in all the decades of Iraq that follows. Do any of them um, achieve uh, what they said was their main goal at the time for the? Uh, for the Iraqi Communist Party, it was, you know, a socialist society after this uh, bourgeois phase of the revolution. For the Arab Nationalist Parties, it was Arab Union. For the National Democratic Party, it was liberal democracy. You know, so none of them actually achieved what they said their main aim was. And yet they all supported this revolution uh, to some extent, I mean, especially the NDP and the ICP. Um, and they all supported the expansion of the cost of Qasem state. I mean, this mm-hmm. includes the Arab Nationalist Parties, actually. Um and the way the state expands in this time period is through the social domain and often right. through the work of women, right? And often, again, in the name of children, of saving children and of reforming children. Um, so I think it's really interesting that, uh, you know, all of these parties have this ideal of a future, which is, again, a constantly receding future. Mm. And in the meantime, in the short term, the short term future becomes the massive expansion of the Iraqi state, which is now a military dictatorship. So now it's a militarized um, state into the lives of, of Iraqi um, subjects. So but there, this, you know, there were some limits to this that you describe, um, particularly with the question of al-Rabita. Uh, and um, the sort of question of who can do literacy work where, right? So who can be the arm of the state um, in developing the people? So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that episode. Right. So there is uh, there was an organization called the League for the Defense of Women's Rights, which was commonly known as Rabita, which is just the League in Arabic. Um, but this be- became a household name in this period, actually, because it was a very um, a significant, large organization. It was started by the Communist Party um, as sort of the, the women's front of the Communist um, Party. So separate from the women's wing, which was a sort of group of cells, like communist cells that were women, this was the popular front organization. So they tried to include other people who were not communists, but it was led by communist women. Um, they claimed they had 40,000 members their first year. You know, we don't know because their, arch- their archives were lost in the 63 bath coup. Um, but it was a very, very significant um, organization. So what I look at is how this group of women got kind of caught up in sort of the contradictions and paradoxes that I've been looking at throughout the book, um, where women sort of stand for modernity at this and modernization at the same time that they're often um, 
used um, and also some often participate themselves, but middle class women participate in these projects of of uh, policing lower class um, families, mm-hmm. let's say. Um, so what happens in after the revolution is these uh, this league uh, starts a literacy project um, for rural um, illiterate, obviously women. And they start going into rural areas, especially in the South. Um, so it's leftist women, um, secondary school teachers, sometimes secondary school students and college uh, students and teachers often go into these rural um, areas to start um, teaching literacy to um, to rural women. This became this huge controversy in this period. Um, and it actually results in the shutting down of the ICP Daily Newspaper, which was the largest circulating paper in the country. Um, the Bath, it becomes this huge node in the struggle between the Bathists and the communists. So, you know, what I kind of look at is how this consensus, um, which really is a consensus, I mean, the Islamists, the secularists, the Bathists, mm-hmm. the communists, the liberals, they all say women need to enter the social domain in order to... Uh, reform families and um, sort of spread social you know, social work and social reform. This breaks down partly over this controversy, mm-hmm. okay? Because the women are, you know, they say this is not political. They, they're all using the same language, like we just want development. We're not doing anything political. We're teaching these women home economics as we're teaching them to read. That's all we're doing. But of course it wasn't, you know, all they were doing and nobody believed them. Um, so it uh, kind of exposes the the tensions uh, between women's work in the social domain and kind of politicized, the politicized, you know, uh, nature of this post-revolutionary um, moment. Yeah, and that there, I mean, it clear, it makes clear what you were saying earlier, which is that there is a very um, sort of close to the surface link that people are wanting to make between women's labor and the kind, in the kind of social domain and depoliticization. So once it becomes that it's maybe about politicization, suddenly it's not, it's no longer a matter of consensus. Right. Correct. Um, So I think that's, that's really fascinating. So maybe we could, we could close our conversation today by talking a little bit about how this moment or this kind of inner war and revolutionary story, um, is remembered or historicized in Iraq today? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, uh, you know, this often gets talked about, there's a, you know, a lot of nostalgia in Iraq today, either for the revolutionary period or the monarchical period. I mean, both, because everything looks kind of good compared to um, the more recent now. decades. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, it's a really different, it's a really different time today, you know, in terms of these ideas about time um, and about the future, obviously there's a lot less um, hope for the future, um, not just in Iraq, but globally because of mm. environmental disaster and other disasters. Um, so we don't have the same kind of developmental modernization. Um, faith. Know, the, yeah, faith and the, and the promises of that. I do think it's interesting, you know, we've had these uh, huge protests in Iraq now going on for years and they're finally getting attention now actually because there uh, there's been some violent episodes, you know, mostly sparked by the Iraqi um, security and police forces. Um, so now they're getting a little more attention, but they've been going on a long time, you know, every Friday for uh, for several years. Um, the ones in Baghdad take place in Liberation Square, where um, and they're always in front of this monument built by this artist, Shawad Salim, uh, the Monument uh, to Freedom, which is what my ep- my epilogue looks at this um, at this uh, monument, which is a really important monument for Iraqis. It's how it survived decades of all these different regime changes. Right? Mm. It's actually pretty much the only monument that has survived um, public monument in um, in Baghdad, and that's because of its popularity among um, among the people. So they always have these protests, you know, in the square where this monument um, is. And one thing I look at in terms of the monument is is it appears to be this sort of standard linear nationalist uh, modernization um, narrative, but it actually is drawing on um, other concepts of time, drawn from the Islamic discursive tradition, especially both kind of 
Islamic ideas of moral decline and revival, and then also like from Ibn Khaldun, the 14th century Islamic historian. So um, we should say also that we will put a picture up on our website so that listeners can take a look. Um, but just so they have an idea, like what are we talking about here? What does it look like? We're talking about a huge, mostly two-dimensional um, mural. So it's so it's sort of, you know, as everyone always points out, honoring kind of the wall relief traditions of like ancient Mesopotamia, right? Um, but it's enormous and um but it moves, you know, everyone, one way to read it is it moves from right to left, starting with, uh, with well, actually, you, there's, it starts in many different places, because there's many different ways um, of reading it. But going through the nationalist um, uprisings against Britain, against the monarchy, through the 58 revolution, and then kind of ending in this developed, um, developed future. But I look at how he's also drawing on uh, these nonlinear concepts of time, cyclical concepts of time. Which even in 1958, 1959, 1960, Iraqi intellectuals are drawing on some of these ideas to, I think, um, kind of subvert what I see as the tendency of the linear modernization narratives to kind of open onto the static future, right? And I look at the sociologist Ali Alwardi, mm. who's doing similar kinds of things, I think, as Jawad Salim um, in this regard, to think about how, you know, let's say we actually drew on earlier Islamic conceptions of time as not progressing, but as uh, regressing, right? And, and or because, repeating, yeah. Uh, yeah, regressing and then repeating because, because you know, I'll just uh, actually say what uh, Ali Al-Wardi's idea of this was. He was taking the Khaldunian concept of time, which um, is based ben, on Ibn Khaldun, yeah. who's a 14th century yes. Arab, his, Arab historian right. and theorist of history. Right. So his sort of famous theory of historical time is that nomads overthrow a civilization, right, and conquer it. The, the civilization develops through time, and then eventually uh, luxury starts to corrupt it, right? And um, the people become, uh, the gap between rich and poor increases, people become lazy and luxurious, right? And mm -hmm. the whole civilization weakens, and then a new group of nomads comes in and overthrows it. Ali Al-Wardi uh, sort of rethought this kind of per modern times, and he reframed this concept as, a, as an ongoing, that history is an ongoing struggle between what he called the people of the state and the people of revolution. Mm. So you have a revolution, you overthrow the existing state, you capture the state, and then what happens then is not um, this sort of now you're on the right road to progress. What happens then is things start to go downhill because power corrupts people. Mm -hmm. So as soon as the revolutionaries succeed, they start to become corrupt and a new people of revolution has to emerge. So what he said is we always need to oppose the current state, not because we're going to create this perfect society, but because it's the only way to prevent the state from becoming completely um, corrupt and and unjust. Mm -hmm. So this was a different way of looking at history than the liberals, the Arab nationalists, and the communists, who mm -hmm. all had this idea of, okay, this is the revolution, this is this stage, now we need to stop, no more change for a while, right? Mm -hmm. No more political change, certainly. We're going to develop capitalism, we're going to develop the economy, and then later we'll have these other stages. So I think it's a, it was a way of sort of opening up a different and I think more radical um, concept of politics in relation to historical time than paradoxically these modernization um, theories actually gave us. And to think about, you know, what are alternatives in terms of temporality to thinking through development uh, with the kind of sort of depoliticizing politics that, that you've discussed. So I, I encourage our listeners to go to the website, look at a picture of the monument, see what kinds of time uh, you can discern, and then to buy Sarah's book and read the epilogue so you can see how she uh, handles this really interesting kind of piece of, of public art and history and ideology. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Great. Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Um, we've learned a lot about 
many things, including development and gender and the family uh, and agrarian reform, and also sort of how we might think about not only history, but like also, you know, what are we doing in the world that might be in a more, um, in a less predictable model than the time of development that I think, you know, most of us still tend to think in. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. And for those who want to find out more, um, you can look forward to picking up a copy of Sarah's book, Familiar Futures, Time, Selfhood, and Sovereignty in Iraq, which is about to come out from Stanford University Press. Yes. And we will post a bibliography for this episode, as always, on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. We invite you to please leave comments and questions. And also feel free to join us on Facebook, where we stay in touch with our community of now over 30,000 listeners and post news about upcoming series and episodes. That's all for this episode. Until next time, take care. Thank <laughs> you.